Good morning again. We are almost done with our series on the blessing, where we're looking at Abraham, uh, Abraham's adventures in loving his neighbors in the book of Genesis. We have this week, and then we have next week, and then it's Palm Sunday. And so today we're going to be in chapter 19 of Genesis, which is one of the more difficult stories in the Bible. And um, it's, it's got some very difficult and controversial and, and portions that really draw your attention. And what we're going to do today is we're, we're going to address those, but we're also going to try and see the bigger picture of what this story is teaching us about what it looks like to love your neighbors. And so I'm going to start by reading the story, and then we're going to dig in and dissect it. If you remember, last week we talked about Abraham's side of the story, which is that he had a conversation with God, where God basically told him, you know, the victims of Sodom and Gomorrah have been crying out for me to destroy them, and I have come down to investigate, because if they don't deserve that, I'll know. Remember, he's looking for a reason not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But then because he has called Abraham and Abraham's descendants into this mission, he says, he asks Abraham to help him make the decision. What should I do? Uh, How should I weigh the information that I gather? How should I make this decision? And together they decide that God is going to be looking for a godly influence in Sodom and Gomorrah, some kind of hope that the city can be turned around. They actually are looking for a way that they can forgive Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, there were three visitors that approached Abraham, and then one of them stayed to have that conversation with him, and two of them left, and now the story shifts to look at what happens with the other two uh, visitors. So, Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, Please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house blind, young and old. Who are, they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. The story goes on to describe the escape of Lot and his family from Sodom, and uh, God, as we heard at the end of last week's story, ends up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. This is the story that we're looking at today, and it starts out with 
a, a kind of situation that you might find very familiar, especially if you've watched a lot of Westerns. So to imagine a Western where the main character comes into a town that he's never been in before, and people act strange. The shutters shut as soon as he walks through, and, and people don't want to talk to him, and, and everybody seems to know that something is, going, something is wrong in this town, but no one wants to actually talk to the stranger, right? And, and the stranger just comes in with this sense that, so, and, and eventually in this Western, the stranger is going to have to like convince someone to talk to him, to help him, and to take him in. And then eventually he finds out what's going on in the city, and they have some kind of showdown, usually at high noon, and, and the city gets saved. Okay? There's kind of that feel to this arrival in the city with one key difference, and that difference is Lot. Okay? So here's how it starts. The two angels show up in the city. And if they'd shown up years ago before Lot moved there, it probably would have been the same ghost town, shutters are closed kind of thing. But there's a difference. It says Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. Now, this would not have been a normal thing to do in the evening. In the evening, you're shutting things, because the, the city gates was a common place for doing business, but the stock market is closed, the banks are closed, it's time to start heading home, right? But Lot is still there. Why do you stay at the gates in the evening? You'd stay at the gates. He's staying at the gates because he wants to meet strangers as they come in. That's why you would stay at the gate in the evenings, because he's looking for strangers. And when these strangers arrive, he got up, he met them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. He's very humble. He's very, you know, think of, again, just like we talked about with Abraham. This is kind of like the... the, um, butler or the, the person running a hotel who's just eager to, like falling over themselves trying to help you, that's what he's doing here. And he says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. There's your first kind of sign that we really are in that sketchy western town because he says, hey, yeah, come, come please come to my house and we'll get, we'll get you a bed and then you can leave early in the morning. We'll get you out of here real early in the morning. Like, lots eager to get them in, get them, slap, get them to sleep, and then get them out. Like, something's, something sounds a little weird. But these Western heroes, they say, you know, they say, no, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and enter his house. There's like... They used the, the Hebrew version of essentially twi- he twisted their arms. Like he pressured them. He tried to force like, no, seriously, come to my house. You don't want to stay out here at night. So he, he convinces them to come to his house and he prepares a meal for them. Now what we see in this story is that Lot has learned well from his uncle Abraham because he is practicing hospitality. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in the rules of hospitality, but he is practicing um, aggressive hospitality. He didn't have to stay out there all that time. But Lot was being intentional. He, he knew the, that there was an important role for his hospitality in the town of Sodom because he knew his neighbors. Lot went out of his way to intercept visitors and hide them from the people of Sodom. That's why he went, hey, come home with me. Don't stay here. Come home with me. And, and then we'll get you out real early in the morning. 
He's hoping that the people of Sodom don't even know these guys were there. Okay? But that is for the safety of these visitors. And we, this picture of Lot is picked up in the New Testament. Um, for reasons that we'll get to, we don't tend to look at Lot as a righteous person. But um, Peter talks about him that way, and it's mainly because of this attitude that Lot brought as a member of the community of Sodom. He says, Lot was a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So Lot knows what the people of Sodom are like, and his mission is to show this aggressive hospitality. He has taken it upon himself to show this aggressive hospitality to protect, his, to protect visitors, to protect strangers from the people of Sodom. Now, we're going to move into what happens at, the, the sit, at, the, at his door. And I want you to try and let go of a lot of the preconceptions we have about what's going on and what exactly it is that Lot is protecting them from. Because there's a little bit more going on in this passage than we often think of. And we have had a habit of simplifying this story. Um, basically, this is not the story that you go to to learn about what the Bible says about sexuality. Okay? What's happening here, well, let me just read it and then we'll get into it. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And the way we have simplified this is to say that this was a crowd of men who were so overcome with lust that they were just driven wild out and they wanted these men. That is not actually the story that's happening here. And if you want to know what the Bible says about human sexuality, there are, there are lots of places you can look. This is not one of them because there's something else going on in this story. First of all, one of the things we already know about the men of Lot or the men, of, sorry, the men of Sodom, is that they have wives and children. Because that's who Abraham saved from the four emperors. You remember that story, right? They have wives and children. Uh, in fact, two of Lot's, Lot's two daughters are engaged to residents of Sodom, men who live in Sodom, okay? And so... Second of all, the way the story is going to unfold, it does, and we'll talk about this when we get there as well, it does not make sense that these people are motivated by lust. First, because um, when, we, when it says, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, that seems pretty clear, especially with the way we normally read the story, that it's one gender. Actually, that's the Hebrew equivalent of saying, hey, you guys, like technically the word is gendered. But its use is more broad. In fact, in other places where this phrase is used, where it says, all the men, they, they say all the men of the country, it explicitly is talking about a mixed gender group. So what it's emphasizing here is not a specific gender, it's emphasizing the whole town is there. And then finally, at the end, it says, bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. Now, in English, that means one thing. What they actually say in Hebrew is uh, so we can know them, okay? And that phrase has multiple meanings, and they're probably using two of them. So one thing that it probably means is these, 
Think about it from their perspective. They know there are visitors from out of town. There are strangers in town. And they have come, it would actually make a lot more sense to us, it would fit a lot more in our categories if they meant no as in no. They want to interrogate these visitors. Which is likely one of the things they mean. Especially considering their history, having just been completely conquered and barely saved by Abraham, that they might be freaked out by visitors. Except that this is not just an innocent fear that any of us might have. This is an evil city where they hate what they fear. And they don't just want to interrogate these men. They want to humiliate these men. They want to intimidate these men. They want to, uh, and especially if they assume that these men are emissaries, are, are spies or something like that, they want the message to get back to whoever sent them. So they're not going to kill them. They're going to humiliate them. And in this culture, the surest way to humiliate someone is sexually. And so what they're actually doing, this isn't a city of people who were overcome uh, as one group by lust for two people. This is a city that was overcome by fear and hatred, which is something we see a lot more of. Right? With Sodom is a whole city swept up in a frenzy of lust over two people. That's a very unusual scenario. If it is a city of people who are swept up in hatred and fear of outsiders, we have thousands of examples of that in human history. That's, human, that's humanity, that's got humanity written all over it, right? That's what we do, is we get caught up in anger and fear and hatred for people that we think are a threat to us. And so what actually seems to be happening here is that the people of Sodom hated and feared Lot's guests, and so they tried to interrogate and humiliate them. There's another example of this in the Bible where they, they do the, uh, something similar. It kind of rhymes, but it's not quite the same extreme level of humiliation. Uh, but there's a, uh, uh, David sends his emissaries to a king. I think it's David. And, and the king sends them back with their beards shaved and their clothing cut so to expose their, their private areas, as we would say to James, like they, they cut off the backs and like the bottoms of their robes, and that's a way to humiliate them, and then that sends a signal uh, to David. And it was so extreme, it was so powerful a symbol that David wouldn't let them come home. He, he made them like quarantine until their beards grew back. Because this, this is very powerful, this is a very powerful image that's being communicated. So, they are whipped up in a frenzy of hatred and fear over these outsiders. And they come to this city, to, they come to this house to try and interrogate them and humiliate them. But Lot intervenes. And in this next stage of the story, we will see the best and the worst of Lot. Let's start with the best. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do not, don't do this wicked thing. That's bravery. The best thing that Lot ever did. He's not, he didn't yell it through a closed door. He opened the door. He came out. He shut, and, and they barred the door behind him, cutting off his escape, and he stood in the way, and he said, No, don't do this. He put himself at risk to protect his guests. 
which was his obligation as a host. But anytime your obligation puts you in physical danger, you know, it's about people are, it's questionable whether people are going to follow through. But Lot did his best to protect the visitors from the violence of the mob. But this is not a fairy tale. This is a true story of real people, and uh, people tend to be mixed bags, and Lot is a mixed bag person. And mixed bag people in very difficult, complicated situations will make very questionable decisions. And the next thing that he does is much harder for us to understand. Look, he said, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. So he offers his daughters to them in exchange for the visitors, which is horrifying to me. Which is why I would say he did his best and his worst in this scenario. Now the question is, why did he do that? And the one reason I will tell you I, we can discount is it's not because women matter less than men, that women are property and men are people, okay? Because he, he, he's actually, there's at least three possible reasons for what's going on here. Number one is that Lot is, is absolutely dedicated to the principles of um, of hospitality, which is literally, they will get your guests over your dead body. That a visitor in your home matters more than anyone else in your home, and they are the last people that can ever get, like everybody has to defend them. That was the principle of hospitality. And so it's possible, the simplest explanation is that Lot is following through on this, and it's not that he doesn't care about his daughters, but his cultural duty is that everything, uh, every part of his family, everything is, everything is on the line to protect guests. And he starts with what he thinks is the most effective counteroffer, which is his daughters. There's nothing to indicate to us that he doesn't care about them. Uh, there's very little in the story to inform this relationship at all. And so we, we have to really struggle with this very horrific situation. But it sounds like in the moment, in the, at least his first explanation, in the, in the moment, his strategy is I, he's just desperate to do anything to protect these visitors because they are sacred. Literally, like it, most cultures considered it a religious duty to protect visitors. That it was, it was sacred and that made it actually more important than his duty to his children. That's one possible explanation. Now, that explanation, this scenario, actually also helps us push back against that really simplified interpretation because of this, this is a story of a group of men lusting after a pair of men. Offering them a pair of women as an alternative does not make sense. So what it tells us is that something else is going on. So one possible explanation is that he is trying that he is he is simply trying to distract them, trying to placate them by giving them some other outlet for their anger and rage. Number two, it's also possible, and this would fit with the kind of this type of conversation that they're having, it's possible that he is trying to provoke their consciences with um, to show that to shake them out of their determination and this frenzy that they're in by 
kind of like, let's say they came to rob his house and he said, you're going to rob me? Just burn the whole house down, why don't you? Because if you rob me, I'm as good as destitute. Right? He doesn't actually want them to burn the house down, but when he says he's showing them just how horrible the thing they're doing is, it's possible that this is something that he doesn't expect them to act on, but he's trying to provoke them, especially since these women are engaged to men in the crowd. Like they're, If every person in Sodom is in that mob, then their fiancés are in the mob. So it's also possible that he's desperately trying to provoke their conscience and see if there is anything that these people won't do. If there's any way to get them to, start to think that something they're contemplating is wrong. The last possible explanation uh, also, actually, to me, makes the most sense uh, because it fits with what we're understanding about why they are there in the first place. If they are there because they are angry and afraid of these strangers then their goal is to try and control the strangers, try to eliminate the threat of the strangers. And Lot, you'll notice that Lot does not say, I'm going to give you my daughters so you can sleep with them. He does say that they are virgins, which is a way of indicating the value that they still have to Lot. Um, in an, I mean, it's assumed that a father would love his daughters, but, but he is still responsible for them. And it's only when they're virgins that he's going to be able to marry them off, right? And so, that's, so the fact that they're virgins affects, is important to the story because it's also possible that what he's doing is he's offering a hostage exchange. He says, take my daughters and do what seems right with them. Which could mean if they're afraid about what these visitors are going to do, he's offering them a way to feel like they're in control because holding on to the daughters is a way to guarantee the good behavior of the visitors while they're there. Whatever it is, none of these explanations are going to make any of us okay with the offer that he made, right? None of us are going to say, oh, okay, that, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now I'm no longer disgusted by what Lot said. I have two daughters. I will never not be disgusted by what Lot said. I don't know what I would have said in his place, and I don't know whether I would have come up with anything genius or, or just would have been a puddle on the floor. I don't know what would have happened, but this is a very horrifying thing that Lot does. But what I think is important for us to remember is that his motivation, his character, his goal, what he's trying to do in a very imperfect way is to protect these strangers that he's taking responsibility for. He's taking, he's trying to protect strangers from his neighbors. So he did his, worst, his best and his worst to protect them. But remember, we said that God is looking for, to determine, is there any hope of righteous influence in Sodom? And now the head of the one righteous family left in Sodom makes an appeal, his strongest appeal that he can to these people that it should have shaken anyone with a conscience out of what they were doing. And they say, get out of our way. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They flat out reject, in fact, they are enraged by his attempt to influence them into, uh, away from un extremely ungodly behavior. They are enraged by it. The people were so blinded by hate and fear that they refused to listen to lie. And what we've seen demonstrated in this story now is something that God had, was aware of as God, which is that there is no more hope for a righteous influence in this city. And then all of a sudden, 
the tables, the, the table turns. Lot is out here risking his life to protect the strangers, and all of a sudden, a hand comes out and pulls him inside, and he becomes the one being protected. They struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The way that is phrased in Hebrew implies that they kept trying. That these people were so angry and so hateful and so blinded by hate and fear that when they were literally blinded, it still didn't stop them from trying to attack these men, these angels. They still kept at it. And so the angels protected Lot and his family from the mob. And then they, said, they tell them what's going to happen. They tell them about the destruction that's coming and they get them out of town. And that's a whole other story where Lot makes a couple more mistakes and it's, it's very human. But ultimately, the angels saved Lot and his family from the rage of the crowd and the destruction of Sodom. Now, if you think back to the story of Abraham's hospitality, remember we said that it matters. Uh, there's something to be, to be learned from how God communicated to Abraham about the birth of his son. God could have told him in a vision that, Abraham, that Isaac was going to be born within a year. God could have been coming down as a voice out of the clouds. He could have spoke from a burning bush. He could have spoke from a magical dancing penguin. He could have done it in any way that he wanted, but he chose to do it through visitors, through strangers, so that Abraham showed hospitality to those strangers and God could respond to that, that blessing of hospitality with a blessing of his own. That says something to me, that God is trying to demonstrate something about hospitality. In this story, it's the same principle. God could have told Lot what was going on in any way he chose. The angels could have appeared directly in his living room and, and you know, skipped this whole scenario. But they, God sent them intentionally in a way so that Lot's way of, of interacting with them and getting access to their protection was by protecting them. God intentionally set this scenario up this way so that his protection of Lot and his family is a response to Lot protecting the messengers of God. So God saved Lot through Lot's efforts to save his guests. I think it tells us something what, that God wants to respond to those kinds of behaviors. God has already determined, I'm going to do this thing. Like he had already promised Abraham he was going to uh, give him a son. He had already w talked with Abraham about how he was going to save Lot. Essentially, they, that's how the story wraps it up. And so, but he wants to do those in a way that, that, so that he can do these blessings in response to the kinds of behavior that he wants to bless. And in this case, it's protecting strangers. And that's what I really want to highlight as we go into talking about what this means for us and how we live as Christians and how we love our neighbors. Because the first thing that we have to recognize about loving our neighbors, and this is where we really get stuck, this is what limits our, one of the main things that limits our attempts to love our neighbors, where we run into a barrier and that's as far as we go, and why we end up not loving neighbors any differently from people who don't follow Jesus. Because loving your neighbors sometimes means risking conflict with others. We live in a world full of all kinds of conflict, of all kinds, of, of all levels of intensity. 
So, for instance, if you have a neighbor who is notorious for not clipping their lawn and keeping it tidy, and you decide that you're going to love that neighbor, and maybe you have other neighbors who keep their lawns really clean just like you do, and you have more in common with those really neat and tidy neighbors, but you're going to love this neighbor that they all are angry with all the time because they're bringing down the property value, and you start to sympathize with that person, and you start to love that person, you start to understand why, like all the things going on in their life that make their yard seem unimportant to them at the moment. And all of a sudden, by not hating that person for that lowering the property value, you are on the other side of your other friends. You believe a scenario like that? Did you see something like that happening? Where if you want to love an outcast, you're going to somehow, to some degree, have to join them. Whatever, whatever the forces are that are pushing that person away, as you try and pull them back, as you try and pull close to them, you're, you can very easily end up in conflict with other people. To use a more extreme example, I would imagine that there were a lot of people in the American South, a lot of people who, um, you know, a lot of white people who listened to the gospel and believed the gospel and saw horrible things going on in their communities and desperately wanted to stand up for what was right, but they also knew what would happen to them from their other white neighbors if they were to actually try and stand up for the gospel and love their African-American friends. And they weren't willing to take that on. They weren't willing to be known as a lover of African-Americans. And that kept them from acting on their conscience. Now that's an extreme example. But it's a realistic one. There are all kinds of ways in which loving our neighbors can create conflict between us and others. And that's just the reality that we face as we are being asked to love our neighbors. The question is, what do we do in those situations? How willing are we to take that conflict on, to face that conflict, to sacrifice what we lose by siding with the neighbor? And I don't mean like you're picking their side in a fight, but just loving them can create enemies. Well, as Christians, what, one of the things that sets us apart is that we're trying to follow an example. We're trying to follow our Savior. And he set a pretty clear example on this. Jesus gave his life to protect strangers from destruction. Jesus knew that if he was going to come here and become a human being and save human beings, that was going to put him in the crosshairs of sin and death and power and governments and hate and all the things that dominate this world. And if he was going to save us, it was going to require death on a cross. We've looked at this verse before. Paul says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusations. When Jesus came here, it was to, he was willing to take on death for his enemies to save them from destruction. That's the example that's set for us. And so I don't want to make this decision that when you face these decisions, I don't want to make it seem simple or easy. But the math that you have to do in your head is to say, really ask, what would Jesus do? How much much risk did Jesus take for me? And at what point can I limit the risk that I will take for other people? If I'm following Jesus' example, at what point is the cost of loving other people too high? 
And it doesn't make it necessarily easier to do the thing that God's calling you to do, but it does make the gospel math simpler, right? When you think about it that way. What limit did Jesus put on the price of loving others? He didn't put one. And so what that means is that for us, following Jesus means accepting personal risk for the sake of loving others. This is the last thing we want to hear. All of us want a a kingdom that doesn't ask much of us, right? We want to, we're always looking for the bare minimum to get into the kingdom of heaven. We're always looking at the bare minimum that God will ask from us. And the truth is that love is selfless. That means that love is willing to sacrifice for others. And if we are going to love our neighbors, we have to be willing to make sacrifices. Now, that may mean sacrificing your Saturday afternoon when you were going to rest, but now you've got to talk to this person who's finally opened up to you about their divorce uh, on the worst possible moment for you. Maybe it means that you're going to lose some friends because you're loving somebody that they find unlovable. Maybe you'll find yourself in a situation where loving someone will put you in physical danger. I don't know. But if we're going to follow Jesus, that's what we have to do. Casey and I were watching a movie this last week, uh, Where the Crawdads Sing. And I'm not necessarily recommending it. We enjoyed it. But the point is, it's funny how even in Hollywood movies, every once in a while, usually the Christian characters are just really bad stereotypes. But every once in a while, you'll have somebody say something that's just good gospel. And... Uh, Early on in the movie, there's this African-American couple, Jumpin' and Mabel, and they run this boat gas station, and this little girl whose family has abandoned her comes in, and they take care of her, and they help her, but she's white, so trying to take care of a little white girl is dangerous, and they have this brilliant conversation. Jumpin' says, we ought to be careful messing in folks' business, and Mabel says, don't say that in the Bible. Be careful. And, and the way she says it is just brilliant. It doesn't say be careful in the Bible. Nowhere does it say be careful. She says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto thee, Inasmuch as ye hath done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. It doesn't say be careful. I love that. Especially with the, the, the King James really makes it punch, right? It doesn't say be careful. It says love, and, and she goes to, to exactly a perfect passage. This is what we do the least, of, least we are doing to Jesus. We should, I mean, how, how much risk, that's actually, I just thought of that. That's a good way to put it. How much risk would you undertake to love Jesus in person? If Jesus was right there, what would you do for him? What would be your limits on loving Jesus if he was here in the flesh? That's how we should treat anybody. The Bible doesn't say, be careful. What it says is, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And the interesting thing is, I should have put the next verse up there. The next thing he talks about is not um, being martyred for your neighbor. It's actually about providing for the hungry. That... Uh, laying down our lives for others doesn't mean that we're all going to have to be martyrs. But everything you give up of yourself that was yours, that you give up for someone else, whether it's your time, your resources, it's a little bit of dying to yourself. 
And that's what we're called to do. And this is, this is something that we're going to talk more about as we go into uh, Palm Sunday and Easter when we're talking about this, this touches at our core anxieties when we start talking about sacrifice and giving up uh, for others. And because and, the gospel asks us to give up the last thing we want to give up. We'll talk about that more later. But what I, I want to communicate to you and, and the, good exa- the good lesson that we learn from the story that we read today is that God calls us to protect our neighbors, to protect strangers, to protect people, to love them in a way that genuinely takes risk because Jesus did that for us. Amen? Now, it's easy for me to say it. Now we all have to go out and live it and actually recognize those places where we're holding back and we're not willing to love because it'll take too much from us and then be willing to do this and share. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you love us so much better than we are capable of loving, that you love us selflessly, that you love us without fear, that you um, protect people that are your enemies at great ultimate cost to yourself. Father, we recognize that loving like you do goes against every instinct that we have. And we recognize that our desire to be selfish, to, to avoid risks, is what limits us to loving the way anybody else does. And we want to break through that limit. Help us to remember that you love us without limit without hesitation, and help us to learn day by day through daily battles, through daily prayer and study and and daily training and building up in the church. Help us to learn to love more and more like you do. In Jesus' name, amen. We believe at Turner Christian Church that a fully functioning disciple of Jesus connects with God and his church, grows in faith and love, and supports and, and uh, serves our community and world. And at the, whenever we hear the gospel preached, God is calling us to respond, to take a next step. And so we'd encourage you now to be thinking about what the next step is for you, because every one of us has another step to take in being disciples of Jesus. And I'll give you a couple of opportunities that we have here in the church for you to um, serve